Okay, hands up, who had their first kiss to this song? Or maybe played it at their wedding? I'm sure lots of hands are raised and rightfully so because Savage Garden's Truly Madly Deeply is one of the greatest modern love songs. And even though it's now 25 years old, it still has the power to make you feel all smushy inside. I'm so happy to have the angelic voice behind the song, as well as many other smash hits, join me today to talk about his life after that thing he did, as well as his recent return to music, please welcome Darren Hayes. Darren, hello. So lovely to see you. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Before we get going, we have something in common because we both have pets that have their own Instagram accounts. <laughs> Your dog, Huxley. A Labradoodle has his own account, as do my cats, Teddy and Sushi. And, uh, and I think you've got to be a certain type of person to create an account for your pet. <laughs> so I think we're going to get along fabulously. But um, how does Huxley find being part of the Australian Labradoodles of Instagram community? He's good, but he finds, because of his non-opposable thumbs, a little difficult uploading the content, you know, so I help him with that a little bit. <laughs> Um, he also gets very offended by some of the, you know, the comments, you know, it's not always positive. So I try to encourage him to limit his on-screen time. <laughs> no, he's just, uh, I'm going to have to follow your cats, by the way. I love those names. Sushi. That's great. She's got this reputation for having the, the quietest meow of any cat on the internet. Oh. They have a YouTube channel. <laughs> really? <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, you know, we just love him so much. And I think I don't know about for you, but for me, it was just that I take so many pictures of him because I love him so much. It's literally your camera roll, right, on your phone? It totally is. Thank you. You get it. You get it. Yeah. And you know what's weird? What? Like, the number of pictures I have of the cat sleeping. Like, if that was like a human and someone scrolled through my phone and just saw my <gasps> camera roll full of sleeping human pictures, they would think I was a stalker or kind of yes. creepy. But my phone is full of sleeping cat pictures. Yeah, you get it. And and also, I think it helps because otherwise my main feed would just be pictures of my dog. So I'm just kind of like, even though I wish all I could do is post pictures of my adorable dog, I'm going to give you an opt-out option, which is his own... Instagram, yeah. Well, this is why I don't have a personal Instagram account. I only have Teddy and Sushi. <laughs> love that. <laughs> <laughs> that actually means that you have – I love that about you. That's really sweet because it just means that you really do love your pets. That for you to put yourself through Instagram just for your pets, that means that, yeah, you love them. I'm a crazy cat lady. I admit it. <laughs> I've got a problem. Let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Let's start at the very beginning, before the 39 million record sales, dozens of awards, because it was a bit of a long journey of rejection before Savage Garden got going. You had mm. dropped out of university and were working in a, in a video, was it a music store, while sending hundreds of Both. demo tapes out with no interest until finally you got one response from veteran manager John Woodruff, who had so much faith in you, he mortgaged his house to record your first album. So no pressure then, starting out. Yeah, wow, you did your research. I love this. Yes, um, 150 rejection letters that we know of. Daniel still has them on file somewhere. Uh, and, yeah, I greatly disappointed my father because, uh, you know, I dropped out of university. I'd been working in a record store on and off since I was 13. And, um, and then I said to him, well, I'm going to go work there full time now. He was devastated. And then part-time working in the video store, had all the modern mediums covered there, video cassettes and cassettes, and um, was part-time gigging in a, a band with Daniel called Red Edge, playing Oz Rock covers. And uh, every spare chance and any money that we had, we poured into equipment and poured into trying to record these demos and send them out. I remember I first heard you while watching... Heartbreak High, mm -hmm. which was a mid-90s Australian high school drama series for our international listeners. And I Want You was played on repeat in a dance scene. <laughs> I didn't know who you were, but I loved the song. Um, and this was pre-mass internet days. So it wasn't for like another year before the song was released 
over here. Um, and I was like, I know this song <laughs> by that point. But it gave you your first ARIA nomination in 1996, which are like the Australian Grammys, for Best Breakthrough Artist. That must have felt amazing to get after your debut song, but also an expectation to deliver another hit after that. Well, you know, this is going to sound really arrogant, but we knew what we had. So um, it was a really lovely thing to be nominated, but we had the whole album in the can and we knew we had uh, To the Moon and Back, we had uh, Truly Madly Deeply up our sleeves. And what was happening behind the scenes was that there was a, a bidding war happening in the United States. So our confidence level was very privately really... Um, uh, being boosted, which was lovely. So in some ways, I mean, I, it's so funny, the arrogance of youth, you know. Back then I was just thinking, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I just want the world to hear this music. And, um, you know, I just remember thinking, one day they'll know, because we didn't win that award. I think we got nominated but didn't win. Please uh, <laughs> get to the hits. <laughs> and then in 1997, everything just exploded for you. You won a record 10 ARIA awards and your debut album was number one in Australia for 19 weeks and you broke America after Rosie O'Donnell played I Want You on her talk show every day. Mm -hmm. And not since In Excess had an Aussie band done so well so fast in America. Did life literally change overnight for you when you got your first number one with Truly Madly Deeply? It really did. Um it's, it, it really started to change even before that, though, because that Australian success was meteoric uh, and it was that, that sort of 90s mall success, you know, when you go to the shopping malls and you would have seen that with sort of Backstreet Boys and Britney and all those uh, American artists where we were taken to shopping malls all around Australia and that's the first experience of, like, screaming teenagers and, um, you know, just relentless promo schedules and we had back to back to back trips from Australia to Europe to London to Germany to New York and um, it was so physically demanding so physically exhausting that truthfully by the time we got a number one I don't think we had time to celebrate it it was it was very um, like an out-of-body experience there was so much going on like even the, the ARIA awards that you mentioned, those that year that we won them. We were in Germany the night before performing at a festival and um, it was our first ever business class fight, flight that they flew us back business class because we were going to be performing at the ARIAs and um, they did it only so that we would get enough sleep so that I could sing in time for the show. Like it was just so busy that, I don't know, I look back on that time and it was just an incredible blur of uh, energy and I don't think Red Bull existed back then. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly you're singing with Pavarotti, dinner with Madonna, Kylie on speed dial. That must have been crazy times. It was magical, really, really magical and I loved it and um, some of my favourite moments back then were, you know, I used to get to be able to borrow clothing from Jean-Paul Gaultier. He had a, a store, well, he had a, an actual, uh, I guess you'd call it a marketing department in New York where they had all the samples for uh, publicity and I was on such good terms with their people because I used to wear his fragrance, you see, so when I borrowed his clothing, I would return it and I was smart enough to smother myself in his fragrance that he would say... Um, oh, you smell like me. <laughs> Yeah, he can borrow my clothing anytime because he always returns it and always smells so beautiful. So um, I would wear his clothing all the time. And, uh, yes, it was just, you know, to go from a child in their bedroom looking up to all of those people like George Michael and Madonna and you um, 2 and all of those people that we love to suddenly being in the same room as them um, was very surreal and, and something that I'm still so grateful for. So even though you had all this massive fame and success, watching interviews and footage of you at the time, you still seem very humble and almost apologetic of your success, especially yes. when collecting your 10 arias. You almost seemed like embarrassed that you just kept winning awards. Was it because you were told early on not to expect success and it could end at any minute? Well, that's such a great question. And I like that 
you notice that because I'm going to ask you if this is similar in English culture. In Australian culture, we're very much told and expected um, to be very humble and not to have that American kind of um, expectation of success, which I don't know is a healthy thing because it limits you really, you know. Um, I think that if you can't imagine yourself being successful, it, it's a stumbling block. It's very hard to succeed. But the positive side to that is it does keep you very grounded. And I am proud of the fact that I can say now I'm 50 after doing this for 25 years. I haven't had any of the trappings of success like um, I've never fallen to any of the sort of cliched extravagances that would happen or, or the trappings of fame because I never really felt like it was my birthright. I really was aware that this was an extraordinary happenstance that occurred because I, like millions of people, have some skills and some talents that I manage. And I got noticed and then I was given some opportunities and I ran with them, but I never expected them to last, not because I thought that I would fail, but I just didn't think that I was some like prince, you know, anointed. <laughs> uh, I, I just was aware that you have to be grateful. But I, I was going to ask you, like, if, is that is that something that English people feel too? You know, when it, it's the same here as well. But I also think it's maybe also a generational thing. Maybe young people today are more influenced by American culture, so they mm. they feel more like anything's possible. Whereas I think I'm going to be 42 this year, and generationally, it was how we were brought up by our parents as a time from when they were brought up to not expect anymore and just accept the lot you've been dealt. And you kind of, you know, felt maybe people feel like at the time you're not supposed to surpass your parents in terms of your achievements and stuff. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. I think that is something. Yeah. I think that's maybe subconsciously, maybe that's what's going on too. Yeah. It's, it's like, Oh gosh, I don't want to raise my head too high, you know, because I could get knocked down. I also think that there is something that you fear a backlash. There is that, we call it the tall poppy syndrome, but there is that fear of backlash that if someone becomes too successful, then, you know, we like you to be aspirational. We like a good hero story. We like a battler story. We like it when someone's like, oh, you know, person down on their luck, done good. That's a good story. But if it's like, you know, the way we all tend to feel about the Kardashians is not very favourable because purely from a sort of um, uh, a trope, if we're talking about like, a, say, a fairy tale, we, we look at the Kardashians as spoiled royalty, right? So it's like born into royalty, continue to be successful. Then us peasants tend to think we, we want you to slip on a banana peel. I can't say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but unfortunately that's human nature and I think when you do succeed in the music industry I notice someone like Chris from Coldplay has a similar humble apologetic attitude too it's just sort of like oh gosh thanks we don't really deserve this but thank you you know it comes from a, a place of uh, a fear of being knocked down maybe yeah so you had three hits and three hit singles from your debut album so given that you were ignored by 99% of the industry when you were starting out and couldn't get signed and you did actually have a number one hit on that demo tape that must have been the ultimate validation and a sort of pretty woman moment where Julia Roberts goes back into the store and says like ha, big mistake yes we actually had uh well, we actually had all three songs on those demo tapes because there were several demo tapes. So there was a version of I Want You. Uh, there was To the Moon and Back, completely the unchanged. And there was a version of Truly Madly Deeply, albeit slightly different lyrics, but yeah. And uh, only John Woodruff was the person that had the vision to see the potential there. Um, I can tell you that it was uh, it was very humiliating for the head of Sony at the time to Australia who said no and then for us to be signed by Columbia Records which is a Sony label out of New York but it worked out for the best because I think having our music and our record deal come out of the United States it gave us an air of success already so there was this sort of awe you know this sort of like wonder about us within the Australian industry where it was like wow we were treated like an international artist. 
And it meant that when we went to England, uh, you know, we were treated like an American artist. So we weren't just written off as like these yet another Australian that was just, uh, apart from Kylie, uh, who was a megastar, you know, I think the Brits were really used to just people being on soap operas making records. So yeah, I was going to say it's because they all came over from neighbours. <laughs> exactly. We, we were treated like, oh, this is a priority straight from 550 Madison Avenue in Manhattan and we better deliver, otherwise we're going to get into trouble. So it gave us a lot of clout, which was a, a really uh, useful thing. Let's touch on image for a moment. There were a lot of bodysuits, mm. uh, more hairstyles than Madonna. Yeah. Quite sci-fi influence, I thought, in style. Um, yeah. And your wife at the time looked after wardrobe, didn't she? On tour, she did. Uh, she was never a stylist, but, well, she worked uh, in wardrobe and eventually walked off uh, after having to deal with me just, you know, like we had one quick change or thing and... Uh, Quick change is so stressful, and uh, for those listening that don't know what that is, it means when you're on stage, it, it comes from Broadway, really. So Broadway shows, you have a moment where an actor walks off stage, and there's usually a, a, a little area that you don't see that's almost on the stage but just not visible to the audience because you don't have time to actually go to the dressing room to change. So there's a little, little area set up very quickly where the, the actor – quickly whips off whatever they're wearing and someone it's down to a science you have to choreograph this you only have a certain amount of seconds in order to quickly change something or whatever and um on that first tour there was a very complicated <laughs> quick change and we, the two of us you know we uh flubbed it really badly the poor thing she was just in tears and she was like i can't do this anymore and i was like no i agree this is this is not a good yeah, let's not and we we did that really for her to have some sort of sense of um well, reason to be on the tour, really, rather than just feel like she was uh, really just a, a wag. You know, she was a very intelligent, incredible, independent woman. But when you're in a relationship with a performer on tour, sometimes the only way to see them is to come along. So, but yeah, she got fired. <laughs> <laughs> what does it feel like to hear a stadium of people singing your songs back to you? And I guess most of the time, at the peak of Savage Garden, it was a wall of screaming hormones singing them back to you because you were really marketed to teenage girls. Um, it feels like love. It feels like love. And, um, you know, it's funny because I'm sure we were marketed to teenage girls, but you know what? I'm so, I've got to say that I was reaching out to women because I was raised by two amazing women. My mum and my sister were so inspirational to me. And I think, Although I didn't realise it at the time, obviously, I eventually worked out that I was gay. And I think there's such um, a sacred connection that gay men have with women because women are often our first protectors. So my lyrics, even from some of those first B-sides when I was really struggling with my sexual identity, I was writing about my confusion in the lyrics. And by the second Savage Garden record, why I would address it actually, you know, in, in those songs like, and to the women that I was relating to I felt like you know women were struggling as young women do with self-esteem issues just like I was and body dysmorphia a, a world that was and still is but back then was plagued with eating disorders and I was struggling with that same self-hatred about my own my own looks I felt like I was the ugly one in a band because I didn't, I wasn't traditionally, I was, I was more interesting looking. I would describe myself. And, you know, Daniel to me felt like a more typically what a beauty standard would be. He was the blonde, tanned, tall, thin, you know, muscular one. And I just, I felt so awkward in my skin and uncomfortable. And those women that were screaming were listening to songs like Santa Monica they were listening to songs like Crash and Burn. And I felt like I was I was asking them, do you feel like this? You know, do you understand me? Would you still love me if, if you knew who, who I really was? And I felt the answer was yes. And I, I'm so grateful for that. A couple of years ago, 
Truly Madly Deeply was added to the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia for its cultural, historical and aesthetic significance and relevance. And it sits alongside costumes from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Neural's Wedding and probably Kylie's Hot Pants. Um, So as a songwriter, you must be incredibly proud of that legacy, but also one that you're incredibly protective of because you turned down a stack of money to re-record it for a food advert recently which had the lyrics I want to stand with you on food mountain I want to bathe with you in some cheese (laughs) (laughs) yeah because the way I feel about the songs is that they don't belong to me anymore they belong to people's memories and I always think it's a terrible betrayal of people's associations with the song when you create a new association that is at odds with history. And um, so many people got married to that song or proposed to that song or maybe perhaps said farewell to a loved one at a, at a funeral to that song. And, and um, we're guardians of, of those memories. You know, Even today I, I feel like I'm one half of the people who wrote that song. I'm, I'm uh, the only person who can really sing that song apart from someone that built a cover version of it. So... I feel a great protective caretaking role over what happens to it. And um, as much as I like money, like anyone else, <laughs> not at the sake of um, destroying those incredible memories like you just described, you know. Yeah, like the, the, the reactions to people singing their songs back, it's, they can be destroyed in an instant and all just for one bad advert, it's not worth it. And the love and affection still for your songs and specifically your voice. I just wanted to read you this comment that um, that I saw on YouTube on a video of you singing I Knew I Loved You with Gary Barlow last year on the lockdown crooner sessions. And it said, Darren sounds like a feather falling and gently touching a clean puddle of water on the ground in a shy, sunny day after a rainstorm. Beautiful. How does that feel knowing you have that emotional effect on people or that it's helping them through dark times? Well, first of all, that's such a beautiful piece of poetry. Whoever wrote that, it's such a beautiful way of words and um, it's really touching. If people only knew how much I worry about my voice, you know, I'm aware that it's a physical thing and especially today talking to you, you know, I've been speaking all week and... It's so much harder to speak than it is to sing. The voice is such a delicate instrument. It's just two tiny little pieces of very, very thin skin. It's a membrane that I have no choice over, no control over. It was just a freak of nature. I was born with the ability to stretch this tiny little membrane in a certain way. So I don't take credit for it, but I'm so grateful that my emotional intention comes through in the way that I sing and that what's really happening is that this need that I have to express myself and to be seen by others because I think we all just want to be seen and understood you know I'm so grateful that other people say to me I see you and you feel the way that you feel is how I feel too because I don't think people realise just how important that is for me as well. That makes me feel validated and feel so understood in in a world where I've often felt so lonely and to have other people say to me, you don't feel too much, you're not too emotional, you've just described something that I identify with too. It's a a really lovely thing and and I'm so, um, it's just, I'm just so touched by that, yeah. It's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. It's a cliche that artists struggle with their second album, uh, but Affirmation was a massive hit and actually the end of Savage Garden was decided before its release, with Daniel saying he wanted to leave the band and you still had to promote it and do a world tour, so it was kept quiet. Um, and you've spoken a lot about your disappointment with how the breakup was handled and it was messy and you don't have a relationship with Daniel anymore. Mm-hmm. But you've also said you were never really proper friends at the time while being in the band. So on reflection, 
were you really just work colleagues who just happened to share an amazing experience? Sadly, yes. I wish that it weren't that way. I learned that very early on the hard way. I would describe myself as being like a Labrador and Daniel being like a cat. (laughs) (laughs) I was very, very willing and able, wanting to be really close to him and be in his life. But he isolated himself from me and lots of people right from the very beginning. I remember something he said to me when we were, were recording the first album. And I freely admit that I'm a very emotional person and it takes a certain type of person to be friends with me. And I don't have many people or any people in my life who are really like Daniel. And so I imagine Daniel doesn't have any people or many people in his life who are like me. We are polar opposites. But I'm someone that really likes to express myself and like to be close to people. I just remember, I can give you two anecdotes. When we first started writing songs together and uh, we were in a band, I bought him a birthday present once and he said, why did you do that? And I just found that so strange because I thought, you're my friend, it's your birthday. And he was puzzled by that. And then you fast forward years later and we're recording the album in Sydney, Australia, and we were under a lot of stress. We were put up in a one-bedroom apartment where each week we would swap where we slept. So one week I would have a bedroom and he would sleep on the couch and then we'd swap. And the recording process was six months and um, neither of us lived in Sydney. We, we were people from Brisbane, Australia. And we didn't have money. We weren't paid to do that record. So as much as that story about John Wood of mortgaging his house to record the album. It didn't include giving us any money. It all went to paying for the producer and the instruments and stuff. So we were dead broke. And um, I was really missing my home and my family and stuff. And I remember being at a bus stop one day and it was just really sad. And I I went to tell him that. And he told me in that moment, uh, listen, words to the effect of, um, I can't be that person that you turn to. I just can't be that person. Don't look to me to be someone that you can talk to and invent to. I'm just, I'm not that person. And that's how we began. So you can imagine trying to be in a band with someone who was so solo and he was inward and I was outward. And that's just the sad fact. And I know people like to imagine and want to imagine that we were these two best friends that went off on this adventure, like Andrew and George from Wham. We weren't, you know, so I had to seek my support and my friendship with the band members. I was much closer to Lee Novak, our bass player, Anna Maria Lespina, our backing singer, Leonie Messer, our PA, all of the other people in the band than I was to Daniel because he just... And it's not a criticism, it's just a fact, but he just didn't have the capacity to be able to give any more of himself to anyone other than his own ability to just go through that process. And that process was ultimately, I imagine, what made him leave the band because, you know, he was a very solo, independent person. So at the height of Savage Garden's fame, you had a lot of joy, but there was also a lot of sadness um, and a lot of turmoil. You know, you kind of hinted on some of it just before, but your marriage broke down, you were diagnosed with a depressive disorder, and you were struggling with your identity. And you described it as feeling like, although you had fame, you felt like an imposter, mm-hmm. and those feelings carried on after the band split. Yeah, I mean, it was such a... It was as though three trains collided at the same time. There was an unexpected end to the career, So I had no plans to be a solo artist. And I I joke about this a lot, but if I did, I would have chosen a much more interesting solo name. (laughs) You know, Darren sounds, it's a fine name, but I sound like a plumber. (laughs) A nice plumber from Essex, not, you know, not not a, you know. And in fact, so much so that on our demo tapes, I had always called myself Stanley. Stanley's my middle name. I just thought that sounded like a much more interesting name than Darren. 
So I'd never planned to be a solo artist and I had to quickly think on my feet because the band was ending and I was having to be a solo artist. And what, who, who am I as a solo artist? What's that going to sound like? That, so I had to deal with that. I was divorced and even though I knew it was the right thing to do, I wasn't ready to be in another relationship. I wasn't ready to even fully admit that I was gay. I knew that I was attracted to men and therefore that ruled out being married to a woman. And I knew that I wanted to prevent this catastrophic ruining of both of our lives one day where eventually, you know, I never wanted to cheat on her and I never ever wanted to be in a situation where we'd had children and then suddenly I broke up a family. So it was a very painful band-aid to rip off because we were still in love, but we ended that marriage. That was a heartbreaking feeling. And then I also left Australia. I moved to New York and I didn't know anybody. And um, this feeling that I had in the pit of my stomach every day, I used to wake up every day and I would um, I would eat oatmeal for breakfast because my naive 24-year-old mind thought, the 26-year-old mind thought that it was indigestion. And I thought if I ate something heavy like oatmeal, that it would squash that awful feeling down, that feeling of dread. And it was through therapy that I eventually realized um, that that was anxiety and that that anxiety was a result of um, a major depressive disorder. So very, very difficult period of time for me, you know, the pressure to continue the success of the band when it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but then I didn't want to retire and um, didn't love who I was, didn't know who I was. Yeah, very, very painful time. And, and you can look back on that period and you can see I was very deeply sad. Very, very different person to the person I am today. Mm. And so you embarked on a solo career, which went great guns here in Australia, but it stalled in America because you were effectively screwed over by your record company on your debut album because they thought you were too gay, in inverted commas, and made you reshoot the video for Insatiable because they thought it was too gay from, from the way you moved to straightening your natural curls. And then they cancelled all your promo and pretty much buried you. With hindsight, do you think that was more a result of homophobia in the music industry or more record companies thinking about their bottom line to make money and keep you desirable to the screaming girls? That's a great question. I mean, I think that the homophobia was just one part of it. I think that it also, uh, insatiable, just there was an internal war at the label. So the, the radio people didn't like the song, so they didn't push it at radio, didn't want to push it. But the president did. So the president of the label believed in the song, but the people who were told to go and take it to radio didn't didn't want to take it to radio. So without a song being pushed at radio, the whole campaign was in jeopardy. But also I think, and, you know, a lot of this is speculation, so a lot of that stuff about uh, the video being reshot and the, the two gay stuff that came to me second and third hand years later because of friends within the label, you know, letting me know what was going on. And some of that stuff was happening within Savage Garden. Like um, the first video for I Want You, you'll see that I'm standing inside this kind of um, sort of futuristic uh, framework. You know, my head's in this. It's actually like a. It's yeah. like an optician's thing, isn't it? <laughs> It is. It's an optician's brace. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I found out actually recently from my ex-manager that the reason for that was because even back then they thought that the way that I moved was, was very feminine and um, they wanted to stop me moving. So they came up with a creative way. To keep you still. To keep me still, which is it makes me sick to the stomach to know that, that even back then they thought that, who I was was a threat to their bottom line. Whereas the the audience loved me, you know, the audience didn't care about that stuff. It was just these were straight white men making these decisions about me. But, yeah, ultimately I think music was also changing back then. If you look at what was happening in the charts, Justin Timberlake would then come along and that Timberland sound 
was huge and that wasn't what I was making. You know, I, I, I had made a very sort of 80s sounding pop record and um, the future was um, Pharrell. The future was Timberland. The future was uh, very exciting and it went in a different direction. So who knows? But it was, it was very, very, uh, it was embraced in Europe, thank goodness, and thank you to the UK because I have a career here as, as a result of that rejection. So you released four solo albums, Married Your Husband, Richard, and then in uh-huh. 2012 you had what you described as a, a midlife evaluation <laughs> and decided to step away from music and had a break. So let's talk about a bit about what you did. You, you studied improv comedy for three years in LA yeah. and did a bit of stand-up and made some comedy sketches. Your boy band sketch is very funny, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what, what made you turn to comedy? Because you've spoken a lot about your struggle with mental health and mm. and how at times you felt suicidal. And I think it's interesting that often some of the funniest comedians in the world have or had depression. Robin Williams, Stephen Fry, Peter Cook, Spike Milligan. Mm-hmm. And comedy sort of used as a coping mechanism sometimes. Did you ever make that connection? Very much. Um, my song, Poison Blood, the first word in that song is Robin, Robin Williams. I say Robin had it. My mother has it. I guess I've got it too. I'm talking about depression. Uh, truthfully, my husband steered me in that direction and my show director, Willie Williams, always thought that was funny and my friends know that I'm funny because ultimately I've that whole persona that I had back then was so serious and yet off stage I was always silly and irreverent and funny and you, you'll notice that now in my new music videos, like, do you remember? It's hilarious. It's just me being silly and camp and fun and that's what I'm like all the time. I'm goofy, you know. There's two sides to everyone. I think I was despairing is, is the truth. I didn't just decide to take a break in 2012. I actually decided to never come back. Um, I just didn't release a press release about it. And we moved to L.A. And I'm so lucky that I have a, a husband who knows me so well and knew that I could never truly leave any sort of artistic expression behind because he was a former theatre director and had himself had to study improv. And Willie Williams, who had been directing my shows, knew that I was funny, you know, that always pushed me in that direction. And Richard just said, why don't you just take a class and see? And what happened was what began as just an experiment to, to do something fun. For the first time since I was 22, I made friends who really didn't know what my day job had been. I made friends who weren't on my payroll because from the time I was in Savage Garden until 2012, all of my friends were work friends, which meant that everyone in my life was employed by me. And you don't have to be Freud to realize that that's a very dangerous transactional way to have relationships. So you could say that I've had a decade of making real relationships where there's nothing for anyone to gain. And um, I got to work through some of my sadness through laughing like a happy planner. And it led me back to music in a really beautiful way because I was unfortunately the person who could write music if they needed a, a funny boy band sketch. You know, I was a person that had a studio. So I was like, oh, God, all right, I'll do the song. And... Um, I got into podcasting and then podcasting, as you know, involves little jingles and things. And eventually I was setting up a home studio and then I was studying engineering and learning how to operate logic and slowly making my way through music through a different direction. And uh, I had been recharging without realising it. You mentioned the podcast there. Let's talk about podcasts. <laughs> You made two, um, a comedy show and a weekly movie review podcast that ran for 125 episodes. We paid to see this. Yeah. And as a fellow podcaster, I'm super impressed as a lot of podcasts don't make it past 10 episodes. Mm. And uh, and there are a lot of work and commitment. I do this all myself yeah. and I need breaks to avoid burnout. Yeah. So for you to do it every week for two years is amazing. But had you always just wanted to let your inner film geek out and this was the best outlet for you to do it? You know, I had, um, I actually did three. One of them we ended up just deleting because it was filthy <laughs> because it all came from comedy and, uh, 
I realized halfway through it that I was in a podcast with somebody who was actually not a very good person. And I was like, I do not want to be associated with this man anymore. It started from comedy. So um, my comedic friends uh, and I just ended up doing podcasts because that's what everyone was doing. And, and I loved it. We paid to see this in itself is a joke because it's like, can you believe we paid to see this movie? And it was my co-host, Anthony Armentano, who I met at Groundlings and yeah, I've always loved film and I realised that I knew a lot about it. I'd studied film at um, University of uh, Southern California uh, for one semester in between records. Like I always end up going to do something, like I study something in between albums and things, as, as we've discovered. And Anthony had a degree in film. My husband has a master's degree in film. So uh, that was sort of the original premise. But it was really an excuse to just hang out with one of my best friends and uh, to have a goal, you know, to have something we do every week, super, super fun. Loved it. And, yeah, I, I, my hat goes out to you, it comes off to you because uh, woo, it is exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely exhausting. Hard to be engaging. I'm lucky because I speak to interesting people, so it's it's, it's not me just rambling for an hour. <laughs> oh, please. You're very interesting. And people are... I think people are only as interesting as their conversation partner and you're great at it. And that's the thing. I had a really good conversation partner too. If the other person isn't responding and you're not giving them good prompts as you do, you're very good at it. Uh, you, you just have silence, <laughs> you have dead air. And you don't have to tell me, but I'm sure you've had some terrifying moments where you have dead air, but you're good <laughs> at this. So you can keep the ball in the air. Oh, thank you. In, uh, in 2016, there was a 20th anniversary Savage Garden album. And you said at the time, it wasn't possible to make records anymore for an income. And people would only do it because it's an obsession. And you said that you weren't in that place at the time, but if you found yourself in it again, you'd make another record. So here we are, 10 years later after your last album, and you've got new music. I do. And in fact, uh, on the 26th of June, I found a Facebook memory on my private Facebook that reminded me that a year ago, I finished this album. Uh, I wish I could read it verbatim to you, but it essentially said, Today I finished my first new album in 10 years. If you'd asked me 10 years ago that this would happen, I would never have believed you. It's no surprise to me that today is the, both the anniversary of Michael Jackson's passing and the birthday of George Michael. And uh, I am very aware of how lucky I am to still be here and still be excited and making music. It, like falling in love, came out of nowhere and I'm so grateful that it did. I went and saw the movie Call Me By Your Name, which is a movie starring uh, Armie Hammer and um, Timothy Chalamet, set in 1983 and in northern Italy. I was just swept away. I remember feeling like I'd woken up from a coma. There's so many things I could say about the film, but I think the most important thing to take away from it was that I felt a deep sense of regret that I'd never truly felt like I had lived my life truly in 3D, in music and visually in front of my audience at the height of my fame. And... Uh, the film was such a positive gay love story and it made me reminisce and think, what would my life have been like if when I was 17 or 18, I had been able to fall in love and be myself. So I, I call them a peach tinted lens because peach is not just because there's a peach in the film, but peach is the color that I associate so much with. That era in the 1980s, it was it was on walls, it was on clothing, and it reminds me of Prince's Sign of the Times album. And, and, and I started with colours and clothing. I started collecting clothing that I couldn't fit into at the time. I was about 30 pounds heavier at the time. But I started preparing myself to come back. I started exercising, collecting clothing, visuals, photographs, 
sounds, equipment, writing instrumentals, and I knew exactly what this album was going to sound like, and it was going to be this rebirth in in every single way. You took a long time to have self love mm-hmm. over the past. 25 years, probably longer. Mm-hmm. And your new music is very personal, detailing your struggles. It must be difficult to be vulnerable enough to share your experiences through music where you'll be judged, especially performing now as your true self. You know, it's funny. I understand why people think that, but it's actually more difficult to fake it. I think it's so freeing to feel naked because nobody can hurt me. You know, there's no rug to pull out from underneath me anymore. It's liberating. Yeah, of course, there's always going to be criticism. But, you know, when you love what you do, you're impervious to that criticism because it doesn't matter what someone's opinion of you is if you don't respect their opinion. And that's how I feel, I think, about my work and about my sexuality. If someone doesn't like gay people, I don't care what they think about me. You know, and if someone doesn't like my new sound, then I just think they have bad taste. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going on tour too to celebrate 25 years of Savage Mm -hmm. Garden and solo hits and tickets have just gone on sale for your UK dates and they are being snapped up so fast. Yeah, they are. I'm just, I I actually cried yesterday with gratitude. I was, uh, again, there's that thing, I didn't expect it. And um, what happened was... I decided that I really wanted to let everyone know that I've always been there for them, even though I went away and that it's the 25th anniversary of the first Savage Garden record, which is my favorite of the two albums, even though there's a lot of songs in the second one I love and I will sing. But I wanted to celebrate that album in, in a live audience. I just love how poppy it is, how pop and synthetic and electronic and it really sounds like a, a good sequel partner to my new music. So the, the person who made that record, that that person was very brave and bold, and, and that's how I feel today. So when I went to see um, Kate Bush, when she toured, I never thought I'd see her again either. So um, I remember saying, you know, if I don't sing these songs, who's going to sing them? It's been 25 years now, and our band is obviously never reuniting but my voice is my voice you know and anyone else who sings them they'll just be a cover version but I owe it to the people that have supported me over these years to while I'm alive to really understand the the position and the privilege that I have the health that I have the ability to be able to still do this while, while I can to give it a shot so it's going to be fun it's it's going to be everything you expect it to be I want people to come along to the shows knowing they're going to get, they're going to hear what they want to hear. Uh, of course, I'll throw in some new music, but uh, I want it to feel very much like a, a trip down memory lane. Before we end, I want to quickly talk about Star Wars. Oh, please. Oh, yes. You're a massive Star Wars fan. Yeah, it's the only reason I'm, I'm in this business is so I can talk about Star Wars. Yes. From washing the dishes as C-3PA when you were a child to owning a full collection of original yeah. figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you even auditioned for a part in episode two. Sadly didn't get it. What is it about Empire Strikes Back that makes it, in your opinion, the best film in the saga? Well, controversially, it's because George Lucas didn't direct it or write it, which nothing against George. I think he's a visionary. My take about that film is that, um, well, first of all, Irvin Kirshner is a genius and uh, the screenwriter, obviously, um, whose name escapes me right now, um, but um, he obviously is uh, someone who also wrote The Big Chill. He co-wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, He also co-wrote some of the new Star Wars movies. Um, so you'll have to Google who that is if you're listening. <laughs> I just think it's a brilliantly written script, and I think Star Wars itself was a very simple, beautiful fairy tale. George created this universe, and uh, a lot of credit should go to Marsha Lucas, who was his wife at the time, who did an incredible editing job, and I believe she edited The Empire Strikes Back as well. But what I love about the film is the development of the Princess Leia character even further. You know, I love how Princess Leia 
in Star Wars was just she broke the mold of what a princess was, but she didn't need rescuing. And in this film, she also doesn't need a man's love. Han Solo tries all of his moves and she's just like, look, I can fix this thing myself. I don't need you to, you know, she, she decides when the relationship is going to start, not him, which is fantastic. I love that nobody wins. Um, nobody gets what they want. It's an absolute mess. We're left with everyone um, completely in a cliffhanger. You know, it's like the end of a great uh, Stranger Things series finale. It just, it's wonderful. Also, you know, it's like every teenager rebelling against their parent. You know, Luke does all this training with Yoda and they say, don't, don't go. If you, if you leave university, you'll never get a job. You know, essentially they say, if you leave the training now, you might save your friends, but you'll risk everything you fought for. And what does he do? Leaves. And does he help his friends? Not really. They, they didn't need him anyway. Um, and I love that about the film. It's just real life. And also, Luke really, really kicks butt in that film. It's fantastic. Darren, it's been so lovely talking with you. I could chat with you all day. Thanks so much again. And best of luck with your new music and tour. My pleasure. Thank you for the great questions. And I'll talk to you another time. I'm going to force my way back on this podcast with the force, probably. Big, big thanks to Darren for joining me. He's honestly such a lovely guy. We had some technical gremlins which scuppered the end of our chat, but he generously took the time to come back to me so we could re-record it. So he gets a million extra bonus points for saving me. Darren's latest track, Poison Blood, is out now and his new album will be coming out later this year. And of course, Darren will be touring the UK and Australia early next year, so snap up those tickets now. You can see all the dates at darrenhayes.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. But the biggest way you can help is by just not keeping the podcast to yourself. Please share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button on your podcast player, Twitter or Instagram. Leave a rating or a nice review. All that stuff massively helps me out and keeps the podcast going. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.